Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Christoph Brumann, Head of Research Group at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology at Halle and Honorary Professor of Anthropology at the University of Halle, Wittenberg. Christoph is here to talk about his book, The Best We Share, Nation, Culture and Worldmaking in the UNESCO World Heritage Arena, which was published in 2021 by Bergen Books. In The Best We Share, Christoph unpacks the political, legal, diplomatic and cultural dimensions of the UNESCO World Heritage Convention. As one of the most widely ratified international treaties and a place on the World Heritage List, the convention is a widely coveted mark of distinction. The richly textured ethnography that goes into the workings of one of the most powerful international organizations, the the best we share is one of the most ambitious studies of the world heritage arena and a crucial reading for anthropologists and scholars interested in the notion of world making and workings behind global governance. We will be discussing the best we share in more detail with Christoph, who we have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. Christoph, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you, Suvi. Uh, um, I'm pleased to and honored also to to be chosen for this interesting series, and I hope uh, we'll have a good conversation about it. I hope so, too. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in doing research on the World Heritage Convention. Uh, I'm an anthropologist by training, so trained in social culture anthropology at the University of Cologne, and I also did uh, Japanese studies and Chinese studies as <clears throat> minus. And um, my biggest ethnographic field project so far was a study of uh, well, an urban anthropological study in Kyoto in Japan, where uh, as many people, I guess, know is well, the, the, which is supposed to be the heart of traditional and historical Japan, it has lots of beautiful temples, shrines, gardens, etc., and also uh, things that are on the world heritage list. So, um, the study itself, ethnographic study conducted already more than twenty years ago and continued since then, was about how people reconcile development of the city, new construction, etc with uh, the protection of the historical building stock. So that, in a way, uh, introduced me to to the topic of cultural heritage. But I'd also written already by that time about the concept of culture and anthropology, about globalization and its cultural effects, etc., and then became interested in the institution that brings it all together. Concept of culture, cultural heritage being discussed on a global level, uh, and that is uh, the UNESCO World Heritage Committee. So that's when I thought I should first, uh, well, read something about it. I did, uh, and uh, yeah, thought it's it's probably worthwhile to actually go there, be an ethnographer, and try fieldwork in such an international organization, institutional setting and see where I get with this and whether I understand things that I couldn't understand otherwise. And that's what I did then. And that's ultimately what led to this book. 
That's really fascinating, and um, that really comes through in the in your chapters of of the ethnography. Um, and you start your book um, in the introduction with the decision that was made in tw- in two thousand nine at the UNESCO World Heritage Committee annual session held in Seville, Spain. And during this annual session, the Dresden Elbe Valley was delisted as as World Heritage property. Um, can you talk a bit about why you chose to start your book with this? Um, why was this delisting so significant? And from there, expand to explain the relevance of world heritage more broadly. What is it about what is it about the decision making that World Heritage Convention puts forward that makes it so powerful? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Dresdner Elbe Valley, as, as you know, is in Germany, and uh, so. What happened then is that a rather internationally rather powerful, rich country uh, basically was asking for forbearance in a way. Dresden in Dresden, they had been building a bridge for several years already that hadn't been coordinated or agreed with with the World Heritage Committee, and uh, it was perceived as having an impact on the cultural landscape as which this particular section of the Elbe Valley. Uh, had been inscribed on the World Heritage List. It impacts views, etc. And there was, uh, that was, of course, hugely contro- controversial, not just uh, uh, between Dresden and, and, the, and, uh, and the World Heritage Committee, but also inside Germany, inside Dresden, etc. But basically, the people in Dresden had just continued building the bridge, despite the World Heritage Committee saying, no, you can't do that. We have to talk it through. And so the interesting thing was that, after all, this World Heritage Committee is composed of states. So the members of the committee are always are not individuals like you and me, uh, but it's uh, 21 states of all the, I think now it's 194 states that have signed the World Heritage Convention that are elected for four-year terms and kind of rotate in, in and out of that committee. And... Basically, none of these 21 states who sent the delegations to Seville had any, let's say, bilateral issue with Germany. So it was really this idea, we're here for a larger community, we're here for humanity, and we have to defend humanity's rights to keep Dresden as it is, the Dresden Elbe Valley as it is, because it's world heritage, it's not just a national or local thing. And uh, thereby we have an obligation to go against Germans' wishes and delete the uh, site from the World Heritage List. So you could say out of a multilateral commitment, the states were thinking we must do that. And with much anguish, it was a tortured decision in many ways, but ultimately because they felt the committee's authority had been trampled on, they uh, took the decision to delist uh, Dresden Elbe Valley. And that was uh, in the course of the development of the World Heritage Convention um, quite an interesting step because that hadn't happened before. There had been a deletion, but not against the wish of the respective state. At that time, the state had actually asked for it. But now Germany was saying, no, don't delete it. But they still did. Well, and uh, this largest, I think the second part of your question was about the largest significance of the title. I mean, Let's put it this way. It has become a really powerful global brand. World Heritage is very well known. 
World Heritage is mentioned all the time, even if uh, news coverage talks about Great Barrier Reef or about the Serengeti or about Venice or so places, I mean, that were world famous long before World Heritage was invented. Invariably, the fact that this is a World Heritage site is being mentioned. So it has become really prominent, really important uh, for national and local pride, but also often very much for tourism, sometimes also for conservation, because that becomes a lot easier once you have a site designated as World Heritage. And I think that's uh, that's what behind all this. That's why it's craved so much by so many different social actors. And uh, you have the phenomena unfolding that, that you have unfolding in the World Heritage Committee. Yeah, and, and in, in, in the introduction, you also kind of write about this utopian um, element to, to the World Heritage Convention. Um, and you mentioned in terms of right. formal participation, it's one of the most successful international treaties. That's true, exactly. Uh, 194 states having signed it, I think that's two more than the UN has members. So uh, in a way, it's more successful than the UN proper uh, uh, that means quite something, even though it actually, well, limits national sovereignty in a way because it says, well, these things that are on the World Heritage List, uh, the most important culture and natural sites on Earth, uh, humanity's property. So we're all entitled to, um, we all have rights in it. We also have responsibilities, but also rights. In a way, that means like the, the moment the state nominates something for world heritage and it's being listed, the respective national state has correspondingly less rights and less responsibilities about it than before the listing. So that's quite an interesting utopian element of it, this idea that things can be national, but also universal global property at the same time. Absolutely. And you also write about the contradictions in that, which we'll return to later. Um, but mm. now I want to move on to chapter one of your book, where you take the reader through what you describe as the twists and the turns of a World Heritage Committee day. And in this day, you describe the formal proceedings and the informal interaction that unfold around it. In the chapter, you highlight particular geopolitical shifts in power to capture how you quote um, the World Heritage committee becomes very much a mirror of the world we live in, rather than a world apart. Could you expand on that statement through your ethnography, documenting a day in the life of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee? I mean, that was a day, uh, that particular day in this World Heritage Committee session 2012 in St. Petersburg was a day when already during the day I had this idea, I, man, I, there's so much happening now, uh, I must write about this, because so much what's, uh, well, so many of the special features of that committee and its interactions came out on that day. Because you had this strange contradiction, for example, that was uh, ongoing while the committee was deliberating, while the committee was speaking, were destructions of a World Heritage Site in Timbuktu, in Mali. Basically, the rebels then in control of the uh, northern Mali and Islamist rebels were smashing uh, well some of the sites in Timbuktu that they felt were not in line with their interpretation of Islam. So heretic in a way, Sufi tombs, etc. And, and that was happening. That was making global headlines. And the committee was 
discussing things that, uh, well, wasn't really taking up the challenge. So we're discussing something else because it was the most important part in many people's eyes in the committee's business. They were uh, in the deliberations of um, discussing who, um, they were discussing uh, which uh, in that particular, the agenda was at the point where they were discussing the listing of new candidates for the World Heritage List. So in that, in a way, couldn't be stopped on the day. And then I go through it, how it's often uh, utterly confused, particularly the item that opened the day was uh, brought the committee into to a level of confusion that many people haven't haven't seen. But then how it also runs when it's kind of more normal, when it's kind of more uh, routine in a way. And again and again, as you're saying, I mean, what you could feel on that day also was that the well, the emerging countries, as they're often called, I mean, they've been emerging for such a long time, I think they could now be called emerged countries, but like countries like China, India, Russia, Brazil, etc., very much um, intent on um, having their own national interests being served by the committee. So there was a couple of controversial candidate sites discussed on the day, often belonging to these particular countries, nominated by these particular countries, where you could see that the experts had all kinds of, well, reservations still, but uh, the committee, which after all is a committee of nation states with delegations led by diplomats, basically talked itself into ignoring these reservations and in thinking it's all good uh, we don't have to be worried too much about that and well then there was an NGO representative uh, complaining about the way indigenous rights are being ignored in world heritage nominations and that was kind of uh, respectfully listened to by everyone but then just two items later in the agenda an Indian site was being inscribed where there had been complaints about um indigenous rights being ignored but the two things weren't brought together nobody contradicted india nobody brought it up and so this kind of uh, <clears throat> this kind of global power play was very much present on that day and i think that was made it particularly instructive in my own eyes so uh, basically showing it's the world heritage committee cannot be better than yeah, better, more pure, or more, uh, let's say, more disinterested, detached than the world behind it. Because after all, it's nation states sitting there, and it's nation states that often are very much conscious of their own interests. Yeah, and this nation state, um, I mean, <clears throat> the, basically, as you already mentioned earlier, the the delegates in these <clears throat> conventions, they are, the, the, the title they, they're given is their nation state. So if we were now in a convention, I would be Finland and you would be Germany. Exactly. As you mentioned That's earlier, I wouldn't would be, be Suvi and yeah. Christoph. Yeah. yeah. So I think that the, the protocols that you describe in your ethnography is really, really fascinating. You were really able to kind of see this performance in, in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. Moving on to chapter two, you write about the promise of world heritage, and you spell out more of this utopian um, premise um, that the world heritage depends on, namely the idea that the world's most important sites do not belong, do not just belong to the country in which they're located, but to humanity as a whole, as you mentioned, um, as you mentioned just now, um, and 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 being property of humanity as a whole, they encapsulate an entirely new idea in international law. 
Can you provide a bit of an overview of how this came to be? Yeah, I mean, this common heritage of mankind idea, how they used to call it in the day. I mean, nowadays would probably be common heritage of humanity to, to exclude the male bias, but... <clears throat> excuse me. Common heritage of mankind came up in, in what you could call extraterritorial, in the discussion in international law about extraterritorial spaces such as Antarctica, such as the high seas, such as the moon and outer space that do not belong to any national territory. So in international treaties of the time that were uh, concluded about these particular uh, things, uh, about these particular spaces, this idea was first used. And I think the World Heritage Convention so far is the only international treaty that applies it to national territories. So that's the really utopian idea that I already mentioned, that these national territories, uh, because nation states can only nominate sites from within their own, from within their own sovereign borders, um, that these national territories are in a way, well, in a moral way, I mean, it's, it's not really, well, the, the, the World Heritage Committee doesn't have an intervention army or so, it doesn't have huge funds or so. In the end, it's a moral, it's a symbolical co-ownership, but nonetheless, it's co-owned by humanity as a whole. And, and that gives humanity also rights to interfere. Basically, what the states get when nominating stuff such as Dresden Elbe Valley is, uh, of course, a prestigious title and uh, recognition from the global level. But then they also, in a way, empower the committee to interfere if anything goes wrong at the site, uh, even if the national level thinks uh, there's nothing to worry about. So that's, I think, really the new idea. And it's interesting that it came about at the time when it did come about, because that was the height of the Cold War still in the 1960s. But uh, something difficult to believe these days, I guess, uh, it was the U.S. in particular that very much supported the idea, and a couple of uh, UNESCO did, but also IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Uh, uh, they all played their part in cooking up this idea of world heritage and then making it into, uh, shaping it into an, into an international treaty, which was actually decided to be adopted. Well, adopted it was at the UNESCO General Conference because UNESCO was kind of uh, um, um, chosen as the international organization taking care of the treaty. But uh, the decision was taken at the UN summit about the environment in Stockholm in 1972, a really important one because it was the first time that uh, the environment and, well, in a time when the environmental movement was kind of becoming big and, um, uh, and the sense also of the environment being threatened uh, became much more um, um, much larger than the preceding period. It was, a, it was an important... Um, um, well, that was, a, that was a really important meeting, and it was at this meeting, in the spirit of the time, where the environment is something we have to care about, uh, was being discovered as a political, um, uh, political entity that this treaty was then, basically was decided we have to adopt this treaty and uh, uh, do something for the best uh, culture and natural sites on Earth. But, so at the time, it was very much a way of... Um 
of separating itself from from nature. So in addition to protecting nature, there was this call for protecting culture. So it was the the kind of the material element, or what was then defined or is defined by World Heritage Committee as a very material element of culture that that re requires protection. Uh Yes, I mean it's the, the World Heritage Convention doesn't uh, well includes both. I mean, culture sites, natural sites, mixed sites that have uh, remarkable culture and natural features, and so on. And yeah, it's basically about sites. So it's always something material, some space out there that is being picked. It's not about practices or so or uh, movable heritage, and. Uh, That was another thing that at the time was considered um, progressive in a way, that culture and nature are no longer separated here. They're both um, 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 embraced by the convention somewhat in a way that in the US and Canada it also happens, like there as well, like heritage is usually supposed to cover both and the National Park Service then takes care both of culture, heritage, uh, of national importance and of the national Parks, but uh, in in European context, it was an unusual thing to unusual idea to bring the two together. But that's what actually happened because of these uh, diverse players being involved and their interests uh, converging about the idea to have this well, this global reserve for for the best culture and natural sites. Yeah, and then it was only later that this uh, this idea of the cultural landscape was was initiated. If if I if I understood correctly, yes. <clears throat> right. We'll return to that. But now I wanted to focus yeah. a bit more about this Eurocentric bias that you write about in chapter three. Um, so so could you tell our listeners a bit more about this process um, where where. Of, of being of, of slowly the World Heritage Convention being aware of of carrying this kind of Eurocentric bias and leading to the um, to this notion or, or to this um, in, increased self-assertion against um, against um, nation states. So what happened? And and again, this returns to Dresden. Um, but what happened to this? What happened when there was awareness, or is there awareness of of this Eurocentric bias in the convention? Well, this awareness did arise uh, basically because of complaints. I mean, the, the World Heritage Convention at the beginning it was all really very small. The first World Heritage Committee meetings, there were a few dozen people or so, and it was all specialists, yeah, no, no diplomats or so. So it was all really a very it started as a very small enterprise. UNESCO as well was well in charge of administering the treaty, but in the beginning it was too. UNESCO officials who somehow did this on the sideline wasn't even their main occupation, and but particularly European countries were quick to discover the potential benefits of this list and uh, of a World Heritage title for sites that were on the list. So, what you could see then over the next decades was also very swift development mainly of the list itself, all the other features like the monitoring routines, etc., that only kind of uh, took shape a bit later. But actually filling the list, uh, that, that happened pretty quickly. So more and more states joined, more and more states uh, nominated uh, their sites and, and the, the World Heritage List uh, uh, filled rather quickly with uh, sites that then, well... 
sooner than everybody could uh, well sooner than sooner than everybody was expecting was also showing certain tendencies and one of these tendencies was that there were a lot of european sites because the european countries had been so quick to nominate and there was also european heritage of a very specific kind the usual one well that's what people come to europe for to see such as cathedrals uh, historic town centers palaces etc so already in the late 80s there were complaints about this being a very well, biased selection of what's the best about the world's culture and natural heritage and this actually led to reform and to discussions about what what we uh, what what can be done to kind of uh, amend this bias and then in the 1990s um, new conceptions and categories were dreamed up such as the cultural landscape you mentioned not pure landscapes pure natural landscapes that are untouched by or large considered untouched by humans but rather places where you have the interaction between humans and the environment that produce something valuable and interesting such as rice terraces or sacred mountains etc so that was uh, something that brought a lot of new kinds of sites onto the list but then also uh, conceptions of authenticity were widened so heretofore it had all been very much uh, been about the preserving the form and the material in the best way and uh, for wooden building or earthen buildings that have to be repaired and re like uh, refurbished all the time yeah, piecemeal consecutively, that was a difficult uh, requirement to fulfill. So the authenticity in, in what's called the Nara document on authenticity, the authenticity requirements were redefined and loosened. It was also said that authenticity is a culturally relative thing. And then also global strategy was adopted. So uh, the, the World Heritage, uh, with that strategy, it really contains um, the idea that we have to move away from the a monumental conception of culture for the culture sites towards one that should be anthropological. It's it's mentioned expressly uh, anthropology as as the guiding discipline for conceiving of cultural heritage, and uh, all these things happened then. Yeah, that's that's what continued through the next years when the the World Heritage Committee became again bigger and bigger. The the, the sessions developed into global events. Uh, uh, more and more people got involved with it. Uh, the list grew on and on. And then also things happened like uh, Dresden, where the committee asserted its rights, its kind of its power as a multilateral body over the nation states, particularly the ones that weren't protecting their world heritage sites in the way uh, the World Heritage Committee saw fit. Yeah, and, and just now you were talking about reform, but there's also been what you describe as rebellion. And um, your your book really um, is a rare example of delving into how, in, in, in efforts to, to delve into how the World Heritage Arena works, um, you've been able to describe why it has changed the way it has. Um, in chapter four, you turn to the immediate aftermath of, of what happened during the Brasilia sessions of 2010, where, um, where the World Heritage game was redefined. And there was a new mode of committee operation more in line with, with treaty state wishes. Um, 
that became normalized over the next few years. Could you tell us a bit more about this Brasilia session of 2010 and, and what you define as rebellion and peace? Yeah, the, the Brasilia session was actually the second I went to and uh, already while it was ongoing, it struck quite a few of the committee regulars as unprecedented because like in a way the committee hadn't seen heretofore um, the expert advice was being ignored. There, there are two expert organizations. One I already mentioned, the International Union for Conservation of Nature that gives advice about the natural heritage. And then there's also ECOMOS, the International Council of Monuments and Sites that gives advice about cultural heritage. And they have a chartered right to be there because they're already mentioned in the convention. So usually they give recommendations both on how to what to do with the candidate sites, which ones to accept, which ones to reject, and also how to deal with problems occurring at the already listed sites. And these recommendations are usually the basis for the discussion. But neither ECOMOS nor IUCN is a member of the committee. The committee consists of nation states. So they can, well, often they just uh, basically rubber stamp the uh, decision, dra draft decisions formulated by uh, ECOMOS, IUCN, and also uh, the World Heritage Center, which is the administrative unit inside UNESCO that deals with uh, World Heritage. But when they don't like these recommendations, they can also, nothing prevents them from basically taking different decisions. And occasionally that had been happening also over preceding sessions in Sevilla as well, the, 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 the 2009 session. But in 2010, it happened on a grand scale, a scale nobody had seen so far. So meaning that decisions that the respective nation states didn't like and that previous, prior to the session lobbied the committee members uh, uh, about uh, were basically adapted and usually in the way the respective country wanted things to be. So this meant that uh, like... Uh, Conservation demands that were considered too strict by the respective country were basically softened. And then also a lot of uh, World Heritage candidate sites that hadn't been seen as fit for listing by the advisory bodies, these expert bodies, uh, were actually listed by the committee. And this happened in such a new, let's say, belligerent mode, yeah, with very much, very heated discussions, very voted decisions, usually decisions are often by consensus, secret ballots, basically, when, when someone calls a secret ballot, this means, okay, we, we're expecting you to say the one thing, but to, to, um, to actually think the other thing, and now in the secret ballot, you can uh, you can show your true colors without uh, any fear of repercussions, etc. All this, all this, the business changed completely, and and the decisions also changed uh, uh, completely in the sense that the nation, the respective country, were getting much more what they really what they wanted. So it was less of a danger to have decisions like in two thousand nine this deletion of uh, Dresden Elbe Valley. And that kind of hardened over the next committee sessions. There were a few European countries that tried to resist the trends sitting on the committee. Switzerland, Sweden, Estonia, that tried to kind of support the idea that this is something that should be uh, 
uh, governed by expert knowledge and expert advice and not by what the respective country wish uh, to happen. But they weren't able to, to convince the others. They were outvoted again and again. And then after a while, they had to rotate out of the committee. New members came in. And then uh, basically it became the new mode, the new normal, the new standard of operations, meaning that whenever a country very strongly pushes for a certain decision, it usually gets that decision. So it ended up in 2015, the last session I, I uh, visited in full, um, it ended up with a new piece in a way where there was a lot less of controversial discussions, but where also the recommendations already from the start were seemed to be softer than they had been in previous years, where ECOMOS and IUCN were already adapting to the new mode. So everyone basically, uh, well, getting used to a situation where it's much more normal for countries actually to state their explicit wishes and to get these wishes fulfilled. And that's the way it has continued since then. So I think I witnessed a crucial transformation to a new mode of operations, as you were saying, as you were formulating it. Yeah, and I, I wanted to delve in a bit more about um, the kind of the, the key individuals in the world heritage that, that you were able to observe so closely. Um, and in chapter five, um, you you trace these key individuals in efforts to look at um, how the world heritage arena became a, um, an, a, an arena for um, individuals to kind of identify closer to this to their nation states um, in order to boost national self self-assertion um, and you describe how these key individuals associated with the world heritage became personally empowered um, or are personally empowered through very much the, the structure of the convention and this this is an intentional in order to emphasize people's expertise from a corporate viewpoint rather than their personal opinion. Um, and you describe how this is reflected in the organizational logic for information interaction and negotiations between party states. Um, could you perhaps expand a bit more about the content of chapter chapter five, the nation state, to tell our listeners um, a bit more about how participants involved in the World Heritage Convention defend their national interests through lobbying and career diplomats? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, you said key individuals. In a way, the, the, of course, the, like the convention, uh, the, the committee sessions in the, the annual sessions of the uh, uh, World Heritage Committee, of course, must be individuals who are speaking. And, and then they are, in that sense, key. Uh, but to a degree which really surprised me, even though I had read that there is this tendency, uh, Individuals are actually perceived as rep being representatives of the organizations there that sends them to, that delegates them to the committee. And uh, beyond that, also as rep well, representatives also, or let's say uh, beyond as being part of national interest, I mean, well, let me let me slightly rephrase it. I mean, of course, most most of the uh, participants in the committee sessions are members of national delegations, and that means they're uh, expected to be uh, well to basically also defend national interests. But I was surprised to the extent how even people that represented other non-national bodies, such as, for example, the UNESCO Secretariat. Uh, 
ISCN, ECOMOS, uh, all the independent observers such as myself were perceived as nationals. So I don't know how many people apologized to me when they saw that I'm German, yeah, in Seville, uh, that they had had to that they simply had to delete Dresden, yeah. And it was like the they they were like so it was the default assumption that I as a German would be uh, would be unhappy about this decision, which I wasn't in particular. <laughs> it, it, it didn't uh, I think uh, I I had no particular feelings about it. But the idea was uh, uh, somebody being here feels national. So beyond or any other roles that uh, that respective person is playing, and that tendency is extremely strong. And then also the tendency within the national delegations is very strong to have these nowadays headed not by the experts. Yeah, most states bring experts who are uh, kind of uh, know something about cultural heritage or nat national heritage, uh, natural heritage, who are in charge of it at the national level and so on. But uh, the delegations are mostly headed by diplomats. And these are career diplomats uh, stationed at UNESCO for a limited time, but then also rotating uh, uh, to some other assignment after three years or so. And these are people that usually don't have a particular commitment to cultural heritage or natural, national, natural heritage. They, they, they're rather committed to basically represent their national interests and uh, to fulfill orders. And a lot of that is then actually uh, uh, realized in a tit-for-tat way where you support me, like India speaks for including that specific problematic Russian side in the World Heritage List, and then next agenda item, Russia, will return the favor when the Indian candidate side is being discussed. Uh, so that's the normal pattern. And also, like, for being a member of the World Heritage Committee, for being elected into the World Heritage Committee, um, the crucial motivation for many of the states running for that particular office is actually to be there to represent their own interests. So they're supposed to defend the multilateral interest of humanity in the sites, uh, But uh, what they actually do is uh, enjoy a better position for lobbying and better position for all others to be nice to them uh, and to their wishes so that they, because they're sitting in that powerful position for four years where they actually take the decisions, uh, can uh, be nice to these other countries in, in turn. So that's, that's, that's very crucial. And the national logic also applies strongly in the famous cases of contention where two or more nations uh, fight about specific sites. I mean, there's a couple of uh, these issues that are really famous in world heritage circles. The old city of Jerusalem, for example, has given no end of headaches to the committee. There's Prehavihir, which sits on the border of Thailand and Cambodia, and both say it's ours. And uh, there was in the 2015 session also an extremely interesting case about Japan nominating early industrial heritage for world heritage uh, in Japan and South Korea complaining because the, the, the nomination files had kind of uh, uh, um, edited particular parts of the history out of uh, away out of it yeah and that uh, that uh, uncomfortable history was the history of korean forced labor in 
during World War II in these sites. So it wasn't mentioned. So South Koreans were saying, no, we can't list this. Uh, history is incomplete here. And there was, there was a huge diplomatic battle. The interesting thing about all these, um, what basically, um, I don't know, what basically um, exemplifies this national thinking, well, well what, what I found striking about the way all these cases are being handled is that as a strong idea then that these nations should then fight it out among themselves. So you could think, I mean, okay, Japan and, and South Korea are, are fighting about this side. Why not have the two leave the room and then have the committee take a decision like in humanity's interest and with uh, heritage as a crucial consideration in their stead and then afterwards call them in and basically tell them what's been decided by the committee. That never happens. On the contrary, the more two or three nations fight about a particular side, the more everyone else steps back and basically... um, expect these countries to find a negotiated decision between themselves and that that would then be without any discussion be supported by everyone else. So that also shows how much, after all, national interests take precedence in the World Heritage Committee. So the more the nations fight about a particular side, the less other nations honor the multilateral commitment. That's That was quite a striking uh, thing to observe for me. And when you say fight, um, I'm just one. I'm just trying to picture the the scenario here. So this is this is because because the way you describe it, there's a very strict timetable as well in these conventions. It's it's very three four days if I've understood correctly. These meetings, there's a lot they have to cover. Mm-hmm. You know, huge huge amounts it's, of people. It's longer actually. It's almost two weeks, ten days, eleven days. But like what they spend on, for example, listing new sites that maybe just uh, three or four days or so. So during these days, um, these there's these disrupt or this kind of conflict arises in in the yeah. actual, right? Yeah, and it can just go on. Or at what point does some dis? Yeah. Well, conflicts. I don't know if you can. Well, obviously there are conflicts, but they're very much hidden. They're very much not in the open. It does happen that, like, for political reasons, it's necessary to kind of celebrate the open conflict in the session. But what you see or what everyone is hoping for, basically, when two nations clash about a particular side, is that they sort it out between themselves. So, for example, in that session in in Bonn, when Japan and South Korea were having this conflict, uh, Everyone knew they're negotiating somewhere behind closed doors, yeah. And Germany is the me agreed mediator, and they're probably shuttling back and forth between different rooms. And and so, but that was kind of the excitement of the session. Everyone knowing that this is going on, so many Japanese and South Koreans, including TV teams, etc., having traveled to Bonn. So everyone was. I think nobody could have missed that this was the big conflict of the session. But it was not plain. It was happening behind closed doors, and nothing but rumors escaping, basically. So, and finally, finally, and that's what I describe in the book, when I finally agreed to to uh, on a joint decision, uh, on a decision they could both live with, and on an intricate scenario of declarations and diplomatic moves, etc., that was to be followed. The chair agreed to open the item, and then the plenary session. It's 
unfolded in the way it, I describe in the book with declarations from both sides, but still there, indirect in a way, because we, nobody was really naming the forced labor issue. Yeah? And, um, and that wasn't happening. But everyone being happy, including the chair, that, that the matter had been settled in that way, in that ostensibly feasible way where South Koreans and Jap- Japanese diplomats were yelling at each other behind closed doors, according to what I heard, but not in the meeting hall. That's the important thing. But there's no idea like, like go, go back, uh, leave the meeting early, we will take a decision, we inform you because you can't. Uh, that, that kind of impulse doesn't really occur. So it's uh, uh, the more two nations clash, the less multilateral the ambitions of everyone else are. So the, the more inclined everyone else is to kind of pull back and say, uh, this is... Uh, this is not our. This is nothing we should meddle with. It's too important for the two nations. Yeah, and and moving from the kind of the verbal practice that gets um, put into the World Heritage Arena and its procedures, in Chapter Six you move to look at textual production, and um, here you describe how documents are pre- being produced within the committee itself. Um, that are required for the operations of the committee to function. And these documents are constantly growing in size. So, for example, operational guidelines for the World Heritage Committee had 28 paragraphs in 1977, while it has 290 now. Um, And in Chapter 6, you look at this textual production in more detail to show how established procedures for submitting World Heritage nominations are vulnerable offering multiple entry points for vested interests. Could you tell us a bit more about what makes it vulnerable um, that you write about in chapter six of your book? Yeah, it's true um, that uh, the whole procedure part of the World Heritage Committee operations and the texts guiding you have grown enormously. I mean, the, just the not manual for submitting a nomination is has 140 pages. Nominations proper then have many hundreds, even thousands, when the beginning itself is like to submit two or three pages. So this is enormously developed, and that would be in line with many social scientists who'd read Foucault about governmentality or so uh, would probably be expecting anyway. Much of this elaboration and expansion has happened actually in response to state party complaints. They were saying all these preparatory steps, uh, preparatory steps, all these standards, they're much too fuzzy, they're not transparent enough. Please elaborate. So and that's what happened. So everything has grown, the procedures have become more intricate, and so on and so forth. But the main contradiction that I see is that while the preparatory steps such as evaluations of new candidate sites or the monitoring of sites that the world heritage sites on the list that have uh, might have problems uh, conservation problems or so where this is grown enormously and being regulated and become more and more sophisticated the committee sessions proper are not so and all the, the all the requests for audits, etc., always only uh, refer to nomination procedures, etc. But the way the committee operates, that's uh, pretty wild, anarchic, chaotic, confusing, often to, to a degree that was surprising to me. Like if a law court, as is probably similar um, formal 
body taking decisions would operate in a similar manner, I think we'd be shocked. Uh, but uh, the, the improvised way uh, it happens as the sessions, for example. So what you have then is the strange contrast between a long evaluation process involving many experts who write reviews about a candidate site and a visit to that candidate's uh, site by one of the, let's say, e-commerce or IUCN experts uh, precedes the session. In the session proper, when the item, whether we want to list that specific candidate site on the World Heritage List or not, uh, is being discussed, uh, almost anything goes. There are rules of procedure governing the committee interactions, but they're routinely violated. So the respective nation state is uh, prohibited from engaging in advocacy, pro-inscription, but that's what you get immediately. It happens uh, and uh, they should speak for two minutes. Well, they will be interrupted in the seventh minute and so on and so forth. So as long as the chairperson guiding the proceedings doesn't interfere, all this is licit, all this works. And as long as basically diplomats also say, well, we have this evaluation process and it talks of problems at the site. But now I traveled there. That's what the diplomats sometimes say, yeah? People with a law background or so, nothing to do with heritage. I traveled there last week and saw it's all fine. So that convinced me. And then the next person in line stands up and says, well, what my esteemed colleagues have said has been so persuasive to me, I, I second his or her view, and so on and so forth. So uh, when the committee members agree that the expertise provided by an increasingly intricate process is not relevant to the subject matter or that their own gut feeling or whatever it is uh, takes precedence, then that's what happens. And that's a really strange um, uh, contradiction that is there. That being said, I mean, the evaluation monitoring procedures, there's also multiple entry points for possible national interests or so, given that, I mean, ECOMOS and IUCN have their internal procedures. And one also hears that national lobbying, etc., that also can happen at that level. But I think the, the level where it's most, uh, where, uh, where like vested interests are most uh, successful in kind of brushing aside the orderly procedures, etc., that's when it's all out in the open, strangely, in the committee session, which the whole world can watch because they're being live streamed right now. So moving from, from the textual production, in chapter seven, you look at what you are what you describe are the vaguely defined and applied core concepts that nonetheless uphold the World Heritage Committee. So in this chapter, you look at the gaps and the contradictions of World Heritage theology what you call world heritage theology. Maybe you could expand a bit on that. What are some of these gaps and the contradictions in this world heritage theology? Uh, the, the general tendency I see there is that like, okay, well, well, let me put it this way. I mean, as I said, the experts, yeah, be they in the secretariat of the World Heritage Convention or in ECOMOS and IUCN, they don't have a vote. Yeah, when the committee discusses uh, and takes decisions, it's the nation states uh, taking decisions. So you might expect that these experts would invest into, <clears throat> well, would try to fight back through defined procedures 
or through defined con through, through strictly defined concepts through strictly defined procedures. That's the way to protect yourself against that. That's the way, in a, in a way, the the order to limit the uh, the the, uh, the scope uh, of action that is then still open to vested interest in the process. So you might expect that the expert involved in the uh, in developing the world heritage theology. Um, would have had invested extra care in defining the basic concepts in a way that makes it difficult to circumvent it. Yeah? Like authenticity, for example, that's a requirement for the cultural sites. They've got to be authentic. Integrity, what you could say, complete, what you could translate as the completeness or health of a property, that's, uh, uh, that's applicable to both natural and cultural heritage. And then also... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that, for example, it would help, of course, if you would define these more closely. And But what you see in actual fact is that in the course of time, it has become more fuzzy instead of less so. So authenticity conceptions have been broadened, as I was already mentioning, to uh, make it easier for buildings not of stone and steel to also get on the World Heritage List. But... Uh, um, it's it's super open now in a way that it can be applied to to a lot of different things. Integrity as well. There's, for example, one uh, issue that repeatedly comes up in this kind of debating world heritage properties: the so-called visual integrity, <clears throat> meaning that important views, etc., must be protected. Uh, and there's been conflicts in recent years around many in many world heritage sites uh, about new construction, for example. Yeah, such as the bridge in Dresden or uh, high rises in historic town centers. So, um, what exactly then is the level that, uh, let's say, a disturbance, a new construction uh, may reach before it uh, endangers the world heritage title? It was a question that in that debate about deleting Dresden was being asked by an Australian delegate. What's the damage or how do we measure the damage? I mean, the bridge isn't even visible from 80%, 90% of the property. So why, on what grounds does Ecomos say it's uh, it has destroyed the outstanding universal value of the Dresden-Elbe Valley? And this is not really ever discussed or, well, transformed into indicators that somebody independent would be able to apply in a straightforward way to a degree that would hold water in scholarly eyes. So it's really basically assertion on all sides. So somebody strongly claiming, well, this is a disaster, this has destroyed the site. Somebody else saying, oh, no, it's not a problem at all. To the contrary, it's a positive thing. Like now we have modernity and tradition speaking to each other, and that's a positive benefit. These questions are never really clarified, but rediscussed with every single property, and uh, the standards that would settle the matters once and for all are never uh, really being developed. Uh, and the most so, I guess, for the core concept, which is outstanding universal value, uh, that enigmatic quality that world heritage sites are supposed to have. That's been translated into 10 criteria, six cultural criteria, four natural criteria. The criteria themselves are also not anything uh, anyone could could consider operationalizations because they basically say use the same words, exceptional, outstanding, etc. But what 
precisely the threshold or the standard for something being exceptional is difficult to say. For the natural sites, it's easier. For example, many of those are on the list because of their biodiversity. And then, of course, you know, the thing you can do is count the endemic species, count the endangered species, and pick those sites that have the highest numbers in that regard. This kind of data exists, so it's relatively easy to do and relatively easy to develop rank orders. But for the culture sites, that's first of all more difficult, and then also it hasn't really been undertaken. And uh, what instead has been emphasized in recent years is what's called the comparative analysis. So basically that's OUV by precedent saying basically you're supposed in the nomination file to compare the candidate sites to other sites on the World Heritage List of it and uh, thereby prove that it's as deserving as the sites on the list and uh, therefore should go on the list too. But all the nomination files and even the evaluations now do compare these, do contain these comparisons, but often without a conclusion. So if the site uh, in question being compared to five other sites and the differences and similarities being pointed out, but no no, no conclusions being drawn as, as whether it's superior, inferior, or the same or so, it simply doesn't happen in many uh, cases. And that I find uh, uh, quite uh, striking. So basically, OUV keeps being reinvented with every site, in a way, redefined with every site coming in. And uh, I think that's, um, let's say, that's a vulnerable cry, that's a vulnerable situation if you want to push back against vested interests. And that's an invitation, of course, for committee members to basically talk OUV in, into existence, even when the experts agree that uh, that site doesn't have world heritage level, world heritage standard. And I guess it's maybe also a vulnerability in the sense that those those um, individuals that or personnel that know how to use those concepts and the terminology, um, they're they're the ones who are perhaps already quite vocal and present in these committee in in, in the committee decision making. And this draws me to chapter eight of your book, and we've referred to this uneven representation of the global north and the south and the Eurocentric bias and in world heritage decision making. We've referred to these themes throughout the interview, but perhaps you could um, tell us a bit more about what makes um, southern sol- global south solidarity so weak um, in the World Heritage Committee and, and its listing and what what what's the reason behind this uneven representation? Um, I think the main reason is that basically in the 1990s, with all these reforms, cultural landscapes, authenticity, the global strategy, etc., the door was thrown open widely to to all kinds of sites from everywhere in the world. But what basically hasn't hadn't changed is the way uh, um, the fact that in the end, it's the nation states having to nominate sites. It's a com- rather complex uh, nomination procedure, and this is to the uh, gives uh, well puts uh, states' experience with this and having the resources and personnel to do this uh, at an advantage. And that I think has never been really addressed. So that basically. Uh, um, <clears throat> In the 15 years following on the global strategies, uh, on the global strategy, 
where new kinds of sites were brought in, but basically was still overwhelmingly European nominations that were successful. So, for example, cultural landscapes that started out with sacred mountains and it ended up listing, it ended up leading to the inscription of many uh, European vineyard landscapes. So all the famous vine areas are now also on the World Heritage List. So, and when I arrived in 2009, I found a lot of frustration. So uh, a lot of people from let's say participants from india from from africa from african countries uh, from asian countries telling me well we are some of them quite using quite radical terms like we are not really wanted this is not meant for us yeah we we're, we're being excluded uh, the, these advisory bodies they sit in europe yeah and many of their personnel are europeans and north americans they don't understand us and they don't understand our heritage I think, deservedly or not, it was often strategic that these uh, kind of uh, complaints were being made, but I think they they uh, they were also genuinely felt. So, and then they, as I as I already mentioned, that rebellion of Brasilia happened when all of a sudden states turned against uh, the experts. And when I looked at it more closely, it wasn't just that this was the leading states of the global south basically leading the the rebellion, as I mentioned, but. Uh, um, for example, the, the 12 listings, the 12 World Heritage Sites that were put on the list in Brasilia without ECOMOS or IUCN blessing of those 11 were in fact in the Global South. So it wasn't just the South leading the rebellion. It was also countries of the South profiting from the rebellion in that session. So finally, 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 the non-European countries were taking matters into their own hands, one could say. But the interesting thing over the next years uh, is that it kind of slowly reverted to normal, that already in the Bonn session, uh, it was again half of the sites uh, being put on the World Heritage List were European. So uh, the European share of the entire pious shrunk a little, but not dramatically. And there's a few countries, mostly from Asia, who've gotten... uh, were more successful with world heritage, such as China, India, um, uh, uh, Iran, Turkey, um, Japan. But um, that's a very circumscribed circle of countries. And like African cultural landscapes, African nominations have as much difficulty entering the world heritage list as they used to have. So still numerically represented not very strongly. So... And basically what I'm saying is that once these stronger and more weighty countries of the South basically got what they wanted from the World Heritage Convention most, from the World Heritage Committee most, which is have their own sites listed with less problems than before, they basically stopped there. They basically were content with what they had and didn't bother about other Southern countries being disadvantaged or so. It just uh, didn't press for more. And there's a close parallel to that, which I observed, uh, um, not myself, but which uh, is apparent in other people's writings, um, in other global bodies at roughly the same time. So um, uh, in the World Bank and the IMF, reform efforts were also being undertaken in almost precisely the same years, which also had the goal to more comprehensively include the global south and increase the weight of the countries of the outside the 
well, outside the old core, Western Europe, North America, Japan. And uh, what happened there, if you really look at the consequences this had, it, well, is that it increased the weight of some of the more populous, the more weighty countries of the South, the ones I've already mentioned, it's pretty much a parallel with world heritage, but didn't, on the whole, change a lot. So African countries have as little say in the World Bank and the IMF as they used to have. That has hardly changed at all. And there I see a close parallel. So we are in a world, I'm concluding, that's becoming multipolar, where the established leaders are joined by new ones, but not necessarily a world in which the weight is redistributed, the geopolitical weight is being redistributed between the global north and the global south in total. It's a, it's a very selective uh, uh, rearrangement, I would say. So it's a more multipolar world, but it's not one world. Yeah, and this is a nice way of um, kind of drawing to, to the conclusion of your book, where you compare the World Heritage Committee to be the naked emperor in, in Anderson's fairy tale, so in this in this kind of metaphor, the countries that where countries choose to bow to the committee when it suits them, or when the domestic constellation creates an interest in world heritage, being posited as a major force. But as soon as someone proclaims that the emperor wears no clothes and the committee is weak, it loses its power and multilateral agency, and it becomes a kind of free for all for countries wishing to shine on the global stage. And just now you already touched upon the geopolitics of how you imagine um, the future of the World Heritage um, Committee to run. But is there anything else that you could add? Um, how do you see the future of the World Heritage List and its committee? Mm -hmm. I don't think that this uh, principle observation, like the World Heritage being actually what countries allow it to be, yeah, and as strong as the country is allowed to be, that this would change anytime soon. It's become too established, and I think the whole development of the since 2010 has led into that direction. So I can't see how it will be um, changed a lot in a very short time. Still, I mean, it's. I'm not saying at all that world heritage is un, is unimportant or doesn't have any weight. But as 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 you were uh, as you were summarizing it, it's, it's it's precisely weight being accredited, being given to it by interested actor within what, after all, are national and local environments. So if somebody there says, "Well, it's world heritage," and that obliges us to do X, Y, or Z. Well, then world heritage can be strong, but it's not strong. It's not a strong institution as well. Central, the central uh, institutions are not strong, independent from that. So basically, that I don't think as uh, see as changing, because basically there's not so much unhappiness right now. I mean, the experts, the ones that have gone there for years or decades, many of them are critical of what's happening right now. Uh, but I neither do I see, uh, let's say, among the countries that are uh, um, signatories to the treaty, do I see much disaffection with world heritage yet? Nor can we see in the outside world um, that uh, the world heritage has lost its traction. I still think that many lay people 
when hearing this is world heritage, uh, associates something very positive with it. And as I say, a news coverage, even of the most famous sites on earth, invariably mentions that these are on the world heritage list when they are. So uh, that, I think, uh, isn't growing. I mean, in the long run, the more mediocre sites are being pushed on the list, the more reputation will suffer. But that's a very gradual process, I think, which hasn't led to a dramatic loss in world heritage credibility to the ordinary layperson in the way. So it still also <clears throat> inspires hopes and ambitious uh, ambitions in locations the world over that also want to get on that world heritage list. Uh, but what I think won't change is... Um, yeah, or let me put it this way. Um, there's too much interest in growth yet. Yeah, the World Heritage List, too many people want to th put things on the World Heritage List, too many people whose position is amplified, is strengthened, whose status is strengthened by the fact that the World Heritage List can still grow and that they have an influence into onto how it grows. And all that, I think, uh, makes it too uh, tempting to continue the same way, to fit it with more and more things, uh, rather than redefine it or say at some stage, oh, oh, we're done. I mean, so the most important sites are there. Let's close the list because, uh, well, basically it has fulfilled its purpose. OUV can't be indefinite, internal, like... Uh, uh, unlimited. Uh, let's let's just call it quits and take care of the sites already on the world heritage list. But let's not expand it any further. That's not going to happen. I see an interesting parallel there, which I also uh, um, uh, elaborate in the book with the canonization process of the Roman Catholic Church, the saints, and how these are designated by the popes of the church. Um, that was a very selective process for a long time. So the saints, not too many saints actually of the many saints there are have ever been canonized by a pope. That's only happening in the last couple of centuries and, and very few. Because also there was what's called, and that's quite famous, the Advocatus Diaboli, a person charged with bringing all possible objections against the candidate that was supposed to become a saint, yeah? So uh, a process actually to, to actually bring down the candidate in a way. So what has happened there is that John Paul II, the, the Polish Pope, Karol uh, Wojtyla, who, who reigned for such a long time, um, reformed that process. He abolished the Advocatus Diaboli. He made it much more simple. He lowered the criteria for uh, the number of miracles, for example, that are expected of a saint before uh, being uh, of a person before being canonized as a saint. And that has meant that a lot more saints, I think he's, he alone has canonized more saints than all his predecessors. But once this new pattern of lower standards and larger numbers has been established, there's no way back. So his successes, uh, uh, both his successes have basically continued the same practices. So they're also canonizing many more saints than uh, all of their predecessors. I think that's that's a parallel, and parallel in the end, which uh, probably has the same root cause, because it's OUV is supposed to be absolute. Even if there are 50 candidates being nominated, they could presumably all have it, yeah. as, as well as the saints. Their saintliness also is an absolute category. 
if if candidates were made to compete, like if only one or two sites each year could go on the World Heritage List, the pattern would change completely. The dynamic would change completely. And then you couldn't all be, then you would have to fight each other for sites, uh, to for spots on the World Heritage List. But this is, is not happening as this is not the way it's being run. Well, the temptation to say, well, let's all, let's be generous to each other. Let's, uh, let's, let's not to be not too demanding. Let's uh, talk OUV into existence uh, is just too, too large to be resisted. Thank you, Christoph. That was fantastic. Really fascinating. Um, I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time. So I wanted to conclude our conversation to talk a bit about what you've been working on and thinking about these days. What are some of your current projects and um, what have you been doing since the Best We Share was published? Um, yeah, well, that was actually, it wasn't the only thing I've been doing in recent years. Uh, alongside The Best We Share, there was another book that has quite uh, occupied quite a bit of my time. That uh, came from a different research group I've been heading at the Max Planck Institute that was called Buddhist Temple Economies in Urban Asia. And the book now uh, came out almost simultaneous uh, at the same time at, uh, as the World Heritage Book, and it's entitled Monks, Money and Morality. The Balancing Act of Contemporary Buddhism also contains chapters on China, so it might be interesting for you as well. I don't know. Um, for you specifically, Suvi. Um, <laughs> that book was co-edited with uh, um, uh, Zaskia Abrams Kavunenko and Beata Schwitek, two postdocs from, who were working in that uh, research group. I followed up a little bit on world heritage, so in the time, uh, in the uh, I've, uh, together with a Swiss historian, Aurélie Feller, whose work I also cite in the book, I wrote a kind of spin-off article specifically on the cultural landscapes that we've also talked about, and contains a little bit of additional information, much the same storyline as the book. The North-South issue also is important in that article. Um, but uh, it's, um, it's, it's some added information I might have included in the book if I'd only had it at the time. So some new insights are, are being included there. So readers that like my book might uh, wish to read that article, which will uh, come out in the International Journal of Heritage Studies. And alongside that, I've also continued to do fieldwork in Kyoto. Last time I was there for half a year was 2019-20, and it's still about the old topic, about the townscape conflicts and the way the public uh, uh, heritage of the built environment is being taken care of and or best taken care of and the divisions and conflicts arising from that. And I'm still um, hoping to analyze that material, publish articles and the like about it, and probably develop something of a more of a broader uh, research project at the MPI about the role architecture and urban planning are playing in what is probably the, the largest, most comprehensive urban transformation history, the, the construction boom currently ongoing in East Asia's cities. So that's uh, the things that will keep me busy uh, during the next couple of years, I guess. Great. Thank you so much, Christoph. And congratulations um, for not just 
publishing The Best We Share recently, but also Monks, Money and Morality. Um, I and imagine the listeners of this show really look forward to getting our hands on it and also reading more of your other work and, and articles as they as they unfold over the years. But for now, I wanted to thank you for putting time aside and for joining us today to talk about your work. Thank you, Christoph. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Isuvi. It's been a pleasure, and I enjoyed uh, being uh, being interviewed about uh, my book in such depth and uh, being made to reflect about its contents. That was really a good experience for me too. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Mm-hmm.